Welcome, everyone, and those watching remotely. And thank you for coming to our annual graduation fellows series for the Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds. I'm Mary Chamberlain, director of the Hemonk Fellowship Program here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Shadende Coker, one of our graduating fellows from Hematology Oncology Fellowship. He has no financial disclosures, and he, let's see, what else am I supposed to say? He uh, may intend to discuss off-label use. He'll explain that in a moment. And he is not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Dr. Coker began his medical training in medicine and surgery at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. He went on to a Master's of Science in Clinical Pharmacology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, came to the U.S. for residency at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and had his first fellowship here in clinical pharmacology, then worked as a staff physician in Greater Baltimore before luckily for us, coming here for his hematology-oncology fellowship in 2015. Dende is one of those quiet, stealth warrior types. He's always reliable, hardworking, always smiling, and modestly going about his work in a very unassuming way, while behind the scenes he's nailing his board exams and pumping out publication after, one publication after another. During his fellowship, he has served on Dartmouth's IRB committee and has been a co-investigator on many phase one trials about which you'll hear more in a moment. He was awarded a synergy grant in collaboration with Dr. Craig Tomlinson to examine the aryl hydrocarbon receptor and other biomarkers in human adipose tissue of breast cancer patients, which just might open before he leaves. <laughs> But we will keep him in the loop, and we'll definitely be soliciting him for advice and maybe even money someday. <laughs> Dr. Coker goes on from here with a new position as early clinical lead for Bristol-Myers Squibb in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Please welcome Dr. Coker. Thank you all for coming. I um, appreciate your presence here. And I hope you will also be here um, at the end of the talk, or at least awake. So when I was thinking about something to discuss for this ground rounds, I knew I wanted to talk on an area in keeping with my background, and also um, something of interest of the cancer research community here at Dartmouth. So here we are discussing the prediction of drug-drug interactions in oncology. Here are my disclosures. I do not have any financial interests. I will briefly mention um, the off-label use of nelfinavir in the treatment of multiple myeloma. I attest that I am not receiving any direct payments from any commercial entity in, with respect to this activity. Here are our objectives. I hope that at the end of the talk we'll be able to appreciate the clinical relevance of drug-drug interactions, describe the different categories of drug-drug interactions, and we'll be spending much of our time reviewing the use of probe drugs in drug-drug interactions. And I'll briefly spend a minute on pharmacodynamic interactions. So we'll start off with a case, um, a little disclosure. This is a case that I was not personally involved in. Um, a 77-year-old female with a history of stage two, with recently diagnosed stage two, her two positive breast cancer. Um, her medical history was significant for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and an unspecified arrhythmia. 
Her home medicines included atovastatin, aspirin, ramipril, amiodarone, and a loop diuretic. After local control for her breast cancer, um, she was started off on adjuvant paclitaxel and trastuzumab. However, over the first four cycles, she developed progressive abdominal pain and a rash. The rash initially started on her face and progressed to involve her extremities. You could appreciate here the peeling of her palms and this necrotic skin rash on her upper extremity. A diagnosis of Parkinsonitis-induced, um, a rare case of Parkinsonitis-induced skin reaction was made, and Parkinsonitis was discontinued in favor of another taxin, Docetaxel. However, on day three of treatment of her first cycle, she developed severe diarrhea and pain on swallowing. Um, she was admitted to the hospital for supportive care, which included analgesia and local therapy to the skin. Um, this reaction was thought to be very rare, and the decision was made to pursue therapeutic drug monitoring. And on cycles day one, sorry, cycles day one, nine, and ten, the decision was made to um, on draw blood for docetaxel um, serum estimations, and these returned 4.7 and 4.9 um, respectively. Using PK modeling data, they estimated her individual clearance to be 6.27 normal being 22. So we can see here it's about a quarter of what it, it should be. And her AUC, the AUC is a, is a measure of systemic exposure of a drug, and it returned 10.9, about five times the upper limit of what was expected. Um, so we are talking about drug interactions, so can we um, guess what drugs could be interacting here? We know definitely the toxins because it's not being cleared. So the offending drug would be, any guess? Any pharmacologist in the house? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I think if you had so much money, then they, because it does to so many other drugs, then they'd be happy. Yes, that's my teacher, I mentored us at Nuremberg. Um, mm-hmm. um, so that brings us to the concept of drug drug um, of perpetrators and victims, which is the title for this talk. These are actual terms that the FDA uses in, in describing medicines involved in drug interactions. A perpetrator drug is one that is that alters the metabolism of another drug by either inducing, inhibiting the enzyme that metabolizes that drug, or by inhibiting the drug's transporter. The victim drug. Um, the perpetrator drug in this case would be amiodarone, as Dr. Nuremberg said, which is a strong P-glycoprotein inhibitor that inhibits the efflux of amiodarone, so essentially causing accumulation of the, of the taxanes. The drug also happens to be a C3A4 inhibitor, a moderate one, which is responsible for the, most of the metabolism of docetaxel and to a lesser extent, paclitaxel. And while we say that the taxanes here are the Victims, the ultimate victim is the patient, a patient who is um, battling with the life-threatening diagnosis and being burdened with um, iatrogenic toxicity. So speaking generally about drug interactions, we have three, one of three possible effects. They are distinct, but they can overlap. We have a decrease in the action of one of, or both drugs, which is not where we would like to be as oncologists. We would like to be here in the middle, 
where we give one or two or more drugs to act synergistically with each other in um, treating cancer. There is also that collateral of toxicity. Most of the time we have increasing toxicity. So the awareness of understanding the different um, toxic profiles of each drugs and how to manage them is incumbent upon us. So a few facts. Um, do we know how many medicines have been approved for specific um, hemonc indications? A rough idea. 50, 100, 150, 1,000? No. So we have about 280 individual drugs. And since the FDA started a formal review process for medicines, we have 1,600 drugs. So it lets you know the number of medicines available to, for prescription out there and the potential for drug-drug interactions. The average time to develop a drug is about 10 to 15 years. And some of that time is invested in actually investigating the potential for medicines to have drug-drug interactions. And part of the reason why only 12% of drugs being discovered actually hit the market is because of unacceptable interactions. Uh, there are some medicines have been actually withdrawn from the market on, an, on account of unacceptable interactions. We can see here that the cost of medicine, of discovering a drug and putting it onto the market has been going up steadily since the 1970s to um, the last decade, where we have about $2.6 billion being invested in one single drug. So ONOS is um, the drug company to develop a drug that's safe, tolerable, and with little potential for adverse, for drug-drug interactions. Speaking about DDIs in general, um, grouped into three, the first, um, the pharmaceutical DDIs occur when you have two drugs, either that are incompatible physically or chemically. Very few studies are done to describe this because a lot of this is done at the drug discovery process and the information goes into knowing what kind of excipients goes into the drug and also the kind of fluids used to dilute the drug. We're spending a bit of our time talking about pharmacokinetic drug interactions which occur when a drug interferes with the metabolism, distribution um, excretion and absorption of another drug. And we'll speak just um, a little bit about pharmacodynamic interactions. A few examples of pharmaceutical DDIs in oncology, um, cisplatin and mesna, which we would not use in clinical practice now because we know that there's a near complete loss of the activity of cisplatin when the two are mixed together. This is because you have the formation of um, platinum mesna adduct um, some studies have been done to actually use this mesna to attenuate the cytotox um, nephrotoxicity of, of cisplatin. And even though, yes, become, the drug becomes less toxic, it doesn't work. Mitomycin C is not mixed in with dextrose because you also have inactivity of the uh, mitomycin C. We have been able to leverage pharmaceutical DDIs in oncology with the use of doxorubicin being compounded with methoxypolyethylene glycol. This leads to the formation of liposomes. These liposomes actually house the, the active drug in there and essentially have a sustained release of doxorubicin. It's interesting that this also modulates the toxicity. For example, there's little potential for cardiotoxicity with this um, formulation and also reduced incidence of alopecia. 
One interaction that one example that I thought very interesting was an early phase trial of recombinant IL-2. Um, the trial consisted, it was an outpatient um, study of IL-2 being given as a continuous infusion with a um, wide dose range. So, and even at the highest doses, the patients reported not to have any toxicity, which is very strange. Um, IL-2 is a very toxic drug, even at the, at the highest dose ranges. So the investigators looked at the biologic activity of IL-2 before and after it passed through the infusion pump and saw a near complete loss of the biologic activity of IL-2. And that's because the drug actually adsorbed to the um, plastic tubing of the infusion pump. So now the recommendation for IL-2 is to mix it with dextrose and not with saline like they did in the study to prepare with dextrose and 0.1% albumin. Pharmacokinetic principles, we'll be spending a bit of our time. We said when the drug alters the absorption, distribution, metabolism, or elimination of another drug, uh, most of our time will be spent on metabolism. An old DDI uh, that sh um, gives an example of absorption, um, an example of absorption changes <laughs> is a trial that combined 6-MP with allopurinol. You can see here that the peak plasma concentration of 6-MP actually goes up several fold, up to four folds when you combine the two drugs together. The same thing with the area under the curve. This is because 6-MP has three pathways for metabolism. One, the GPRT enzyme that gives an active metabolite, xanthine oxidase, and the TPMT. By giving allopurinol together with the drug, you'd actually inhibit xanthine oxidase in the lining of the bowel leading to increased absorption. That doesn't mean the two drugs can be used together. Um, a, dose a dosage reduction of 6-MP is indicated if they are to be used. And actually, our pediatrics colleague actually used this, um, this to the advantage because it also modulates the, um, you have less of, for some unknown reasons, 6-methylmacotipacaptopurine, which is responsible for much of the hepatotoxicity of, of um, 6-MP. Now, in the assessment of DDIs affecting drug metabolism and transporters, we have guidance from the FDA on how in vitro studies are carried out. You have in vitro studies carried out first before, um, and if they are indicated, clinical studies. And this guidance document essentially seeks to know whether, first of all, the drug under development is a potential victim drug. That is, is it metabolized by one of these enzymes? And using liver microsomes, in vitro tests are carried out. And if it is determined that up to 25% of the drug's elimination is by one of these enzymes, then clinical drug interaction studies are indicated. Similarly, inhibition studies are carried out to see if the drug under development would be a potential perpetrator. And the threshold to decide if clinical studies are needed is um, an AUC of 1.5. I'll explain this a little bit more. Um, the same thing goes for induction studies to see if the drug has the potential to in induce or to increase the quantitative or qualitative amounts of CIP enzymes. If the results of um, in vitro studies indicate that clinical studies are indicated, we have guidance from the FDA as well as to how these, these studies are carried out and how they are reported. And essentially, they use pro-drugs as part of the, as the main 
um, way in which we determine this. So a probe substrate or a probe drug is a drug whereby we know that its metabolism is only by one specific enzyme, mostly by one specific enzyme, and we can use that to tease out drug-drug interactions. So in this little cartoon here, how do we use them in general? The principle is that we give a probe substrate, which, which serves as a victim to a patient, and they would take blood samples at, at intervals to measure pharmacokinetics and derive what we, call, what we call the AUCD exposure. Then the same patients, you would administer the investigational agent that's under development, and then you repeat the probe substrates. You compare the, the PK parameters before and after you give the investigational agent, and you op essentially obtain the ratio and see whether the post-substrate's concentration or exposure increases or decreases. If um, the drug under development is found to be an inducer, for example, it's further classified whether it's a strong, moderate, or weak inhibitor, um, strong inducer. Strong inducers increase the probe AUC or the, or the probe substrate by more than 80%. Moderate decreases the probe AUC by between 50 and 80%, and weak ones decreases the probe AUC by between 20 and 50%. If the drug under development is an inhibitor of an enzyme, it increases the AUC, increases the exposure of the, the victim drug by, by five-fold. If it's moderate, between two and five-fold, and if it's weak, between 1.25 and two-fold. Here are the list of probe substrates that the FDA um, recognizes to be useful in clinical studies. Um, so these are the victim drugs in drug-drug interaction studies for um, investigational agents. And to determine if the drug and our development is um, a victim, these are the perpetrator drugs that are used. These are known inducers and inhibitors of the specific enzymes in the far left corner. So we have been um, fortunate to be involved in several drug-drug interaction studies here in Dartmouth. One that was involved, in, in, involved um, lapatinib. Lapatinib is an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor used in the treatment of metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. In vitro studies show that this enzyme, this drug, at therapeutic levels is able to inhibit CYP3A4. So it was mandated that they needed to um, perform in vivo in patient clinical studies to determine this. So just a recap, medazolam, which is our victim drug here, is almost wholly metabolized by CYP3A4 to give um, hydroxymedazolam. So giving lapatinib would inhibit this enzyme and you'd have more of medazolam hanging around. So partnering with um, UNC Chapel Hill, we um, did this study using oral and IV midazolam. It was a partially randomized four-period, four-sequence clinical study. And using sequence one as an example, patients in sequence one would receive midazolam orally, three milligrams on day one, and one milligram on day three. These are bioequivalent doses, although given at two different routes, three milligrams PO and one milligrams IV intravenous at the same dose, essentially. Then you'd begin your um, perpetrator drug on day four and continue to the end of the study. Uh, but on day nine, you'll be given oral midazolam and intravenous midazolam. We hope to get 24 patients in the two study centers 
the patients needed to have um, an adequate performance status to undergo clinical trials. They also needed to have adequate bone marrow and cardiac function. A washout was needed of agents that were the, the medicines that the patients were on that were known to be inducers or inhibitors of C3A4. Also because we know that grapefruit juice and some herbal supplements also can either induce or inhibit C3A4, we ask that they abstain from this as well. Blood for oral midazolam was taken at predetermined endpoints and was as, uh, measured using LC mass spec mass spec. We used non-compartmental analysis for this um, because fewer assumptions are made in the distribution of a drug because of, um, for this. Um, Cmax and Cmax, Cmax and Cmax were observed. Cmax was extrapolated for the IV dose and we calculated the clearance and volume of distribution at steady states. The PK parameters before and after the introduction of lapaknib was, was assessed using um, software, SAS, and we graded toxicity using the NCI CCCAE version 3. So you have the results of the study. We had 24 patients, although one patient progressed during the study due to, uh, came off the study due to disease progression, and one patient was excluded from PK analysis on account of um, a misdose of lapaknib. Um, the mean age of patients were 56 years. Most of the patients um, were either had breast or colorectal cancer. We also had some patients with non-small cell cancer and melanoma. So here is um, the semi-log plot showing the systemic exposure for midazolam during the study. Um, the open circles, patients while they were on IV midazolam alone, and then when they were on lapatinib. So IV, midazolam, and lapatinib in this solid or closed-off circle. For patients that were on, um, at the time they were on oral midazolam alone, you can see here in the open triangle and with the closed triangle here when they were on lapatinib. And remember I said the doses were equivalent, so it begs the question why we have the difference in these, in these curves. You'd think that they'd be closer together. So it turns out the area under the curve, the exposure for midazolam, when the patients were on lapatinib and when they were not, the ratio actually crossed the regulatory threshold of 1.25 to show that lapatinib actually, oral lapatinib actually inhibits um, the metabolism of midazolam, showing that it is an inhibitor of C3A4. This pan out with oral midazolam, but not with IV midazolam. And this is because when you give lapatinib orally, it inhibits not only C3A4 in the, in the liver, but also in the bowel. So you have two sites of inhibition with, with oral midazolam. So this information, we were able to publish this data, and the data actually is in the product label for lapatinib that it does have um, the propensity to increase the exposure of concomitantly administered drugs are substrates for C3A4. Um, other studies were done to, for 2C, 2C8 and P glycoprotein. Toxicities that we um, saw during this study were diarrhea, 42%, lymphopenia, 29%. Um, unfortunately, we did not have any complete any responses during the study, but 30% of patients had stable disease and 40%, about 40% of them had disease progression. The median dosing was 41 days. 
Another study I'd like to um, quickly show is um, a drug, um, Soridigib, which is used in the treatments of advanced basal cell cancer. Um, the, in development, it was called LDE-225. It's an inhibit inhibitor of the hedgehog pathway, which is involved in embryogenesis, and which is also involved in the pathway for, this, for basal cell cancer, and also some CNS tumors. Preclinical studies in vitro had shown that those, there was a propensity for this um, drug to inhibit CYP2B6 and 2C9 at concentrations that we would see in regular clinical practice. So again, we had to do another um, a clinical study. Of notes, we give this drug on an empty stomach because if you take it with food, your exposure to the drug would actually increase four to seven, about four, seven-fold. So um, this was the study design. The same principle, we had um, patients divided into two groups. The first group of patients would receive warfarin. Warfarin is the probe substrate for 2C9 and bupropion in group two, which is um, the probe substrate for um, 2B6. The same principle, you give your probe drug, measure PK, and then you begin your study drug, we measure the PK and you compare the two. The same was done for patients on in group two. Here are the patients. We had 61 patients. This was across about five study centers in the US. Group one patients had, um, we had 61 patients in group one and 51 patients in group two. Most of the patients either had colon or lung cancer with the fair amounts of patients with pancreatic cancer. Without, we can see here that the the exposure curves for when the patients were taking warfarin alone here is very close to when we're taking the drug with warfarin. And actually the ratios of their AUCs, which is, like I said, the measure of their systemic exposure, did not cross regulatory threshold of 1.25. The same results were obtained with um, patients in group two can see the curves are very close to each other, and again, did not cross regulatory threshold. So in the product label for um, sonidigib, there is no warning for interactions with these two agents, or enzymes metabolized by these two agents. And this is a study that we just approved for last month. It's a study of a novel we want inhibitor, um, AZD1775. Um, again, in vitro studies suggest that it has the propensity to inhibit these enzymes, CYP3A4, 2C19, and 1A2. We1 is a regulator of the cell cycle, and acting on check CDK1, it inhibits that regulator as well and causes a delay in, in the cell cycle, allowing for DNA damage repair. By inhibiting we one you cause CDK1 to be active, allowing the cell to undergo what is called catastrophic mitosis. So the, the premise is that you give um, the investigational agent, AZD1775, with a DNA damaging agent and assess their um, anti-cancer effects together. So again, um, like I said, the study is open to enrollment. The study design is that you give the three, a cocktail of the three substrates, midazolam, omeprazole, and caffeine. Measure PK, then you give the two drugs together, measure PK again. And there is a, a thorough QTC, that's another discussion, a thorough QTC study at the end of this 
um, as, as a part B of this trial. So here are some of the studies that we have done and have published from the phase one group here. The last one, the Sonidigi study manuscript is still under preparation. So I'll use um, last few minutes of this talk to talk about a collaborative effort between um, basic researcher here, who used to be here, um, Alexei Kisilev. Alexei was looking into biomarkers for endothelial reticular stress in myeloma cells using uh, botezomib or, or Velcade. Um, like I said, his lab was focused on these biomarkers, GAD33, ATF, and looking to see how to um, assess them. About this time as well, um, I forgot to mention, Velcade is a proteasome inhibitor used in multiple myeloma, and it's approved for that. And we have an oral formulation. We got wind, or he got wind, of a study that used nelfinavir. Nelfinavir is a protease inhibitor used in the treatment of HIV, and was able to actually overcome some of the resistance of uh, myeloma cells to botezomib. And he approached the phase one group and wanted to design a phase one trial to see, um, and using biomarkers to see if we add the two drugs together, exasimib, which is similar to, to botezomib, if you could actually see increase in the biomarkers that show that yes, you do have synergism between the two drugs. But we knew that nelfinavir is a very potent CYP3A4 inhibitor, and care needed to, you couldn't just combine the two drugs together, you need to design a dose escalation study. So we um, sat down together and wrote a phase one clinical trial combining the two agents. MLN9708, sorry, is exacerbated. This was one, it was still in development. And um, the study was, to, the main um, aim of the study was to establish the, the mean to, um, tolerable dose for exacerbate along with twice in nefenavir to look at the safety of the two combinations. We're interested in the PK um, aspects of it to see how much of the exposure of um, exasomib would actually change with nelfinavir, and it was interested to see whether there would actually be an upregulation of these biomarkers in using these two combinations. The third, it took a very long time for the study to get funded, and by the time it eventually did, um, we lost the support of the sponsor. Um, there are a lot of gaps in this type of science. We are looking at trials involving very few patients here, 20, 30, 40 patients, which do not always translate into what we see in, in the clinic. Um, so would it be possible to use data from um, later phase studies, phase two, phase three studies, and incorporate them into, into data, maybe using computational uh, methods, science, along with data from in vitro studies to, do, to help us predict DDIs? We don't know a lot about drug interactions involving therapeutic proteins, the, the MABs, the cytokines that are available for therapeutic purposes. And actually right now the FDA is actually is asking for public comments so that they could formalize um, a document for this. Um, there, are some, there is some buzzword about, buzz about drug microbiome interactions. They have been reported in the literature, but then again there's no systematic way of studying this and also reporting this. Um, so, in summary, I hope you could appreciate some of the relevant, clinical relevance of drug-drug interactions, how they affect um, the patients that we are caring for, and as well as providers being aware of them. Describe the different types of drug-drug interactions, 
and the use of probe drugs in drug interaction studies. Um, I'd like to thank Drs. Um, Lewis and Nuremberg for their training in pharmacology. Also, other um, folks from the Phase One team, um, Darcy, Bernie, Brian, and get folks in the investigational pharmacy are uh, hemon providers because they actually refer these patients to early phase studies. And most of all, the patients, um, to be honest, a lot of them know they won't derive a lot of clinical benefit from these studies, but they still choose to do it anyway because of the sheer altruism and wanting to contribute to medical knowledge. So, open to questions. Thank you all for staying. <laughs> Tough. Um, I forgot to mention um, when preparing for the case, I actually looked up. There's a software that we use CPA online. If we're thinking about an interaction, we plug them in and see. That interaction actually did not pop up. So it's very, very difficult. And it's right there in the product label for both of them that amiodarone is a known um, inhibitor of the P glycoprotein. So it's very tough. Is there, apart from my personal experience talking with a pharmacy, um, there's really no flowchart that we go by. So along those same lines, I think that the way that I run into these drug-drug interactions is when I'm ordering something and, and, see, and the Epic tells me that, that there's a drug-drug interaction, then I have to make a decision, is this mm -hmm. real, is this mm -hmm. not real? Um, and um, sometimes I'm very glad for, for that interaction. I mean, <laughs> but it's, it seems like an area where we could do better. We could do better at surfacing these drug-drug interactions. Mm -hmm. um, do you know how, how our system, uh, how are these interactions identified? How, how do they decide, how does the system decide when to turn on the drug interaction? So it's all software-based. Um, like I know, I believe before we used to use the CPO line, now we use Lexicomp, and actually the pharmacist is on the back end. And that goes into the, the program, so that when you're prescribing the EDH, it comes up. Not a lot of them are significant, I'm sure you'd know I've come across a lot of interactions, but I know that this is not clinically significant, and I would go ahead and prescribe it. Um, how best to improve this, to be honest, I think it's a challenge. And not every patient is the same. Like, for example, we know that some patients have polymorphisms in enzymes, and even though um, interaction may be significant for one patient, it might not be significant for them because they're poor metabolizers anyway. So it's quite difficult. I believe... Um, in this institution, we are, there's a move to start typing, having um, genotypes for patient CIP enzymes. So that might be something that we should look into as an um, institution going forward. And um, just wanted to get a sense of what your perspective is on the extent of the issue um, to which we, we miss things. Um, you know, it's relatively uncommon still that in the general oncology and <clears throat> hematology and even BNT settings that we actually do PK testing and, and, and look at these levels. You know, I guess the big one in BNT is going to be sulfan. But do you think that um, should we be doing a better job at 
assessing not so much on the toxicity side because that could be fairly obvious, but on the you know suboptimal therapeutic levels, um, should we be more closely looking at that issue and trying to define windows of therapeutic benefit than, than we are? Or do we take a lot for granted, do you think? And maybe that explains why some patients do well for and much better than I completely agree. Um, I completely agree. For example, there are studies um, involving um, the pd one antagonists, for example, and how they change with microbiome. There's, it's such a complex field, and it, like you said, do patients, do, why, are, why is it that some patients don't derive benefits and others do? Could it be because of interactions that we are missing? The thing is, who's going to pay for these? These assaying these different drugs, they are very expensive. They need special assays. They're not run on a regular basis. I think that's one of the challenges that we, that any institution would 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 face. Um, I guess time consuming. Getting the information in real time to affect your decisions is also um, a problem as well. So I. That's um, a line of thinking that, you know, how many patients could be deriving benefit, but we don't know because we're underdosing them, um, for example. <coughs> Henry, that was, that was an excellent um, talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, I wanted to address two of the issues that you raised that the folks in the audience also addressed. One is the problem with the automatic warnings is um, if you flood patients with them, you can get warning fatigue and people ignore it. So a level one warning would be watch out, your patient is on the top of all and hydrochloric and they both act to lower blood pressure. Everybody says, I know that, I'm, I'm not going to look at these stupid things anymore. So then you say, don't show the level one warnings, don't show the level two warnings, only show the level four and five that are potentially life-threatening. That's what you see but by setting the threshold that high, sometimes you miss a significant level two or level three. So where do you set the threshold? If you set it too low, everyone gets warning fatigue. And if you set it higher, you can miss it. The other thing that I think Dende was showing beautifully by talking about the, diff the different uh, polymorphisms of metabolizing enzymes is some medical centers like Vanderbilt and uh, Indiana uh, University um, and Mayo Clinic and University of Chicago that are really into pharmacogenomics are routinely screening every patient in their healthcare system who comes in for the top six or seven drug metabolizing enzymes that then show. And you can imagine if you knew that for every patient that you see in oncology and you knew that the specific drug was mostly metabolized by 3A4, and you knew in advance that they were an ultra-rapid or an ultra-serious <coughs> metabolizer, or that they were on two other drugs of the 3A4 inhibitors, you would be in a much better spot. And I know that Gennady was very interested in this um, until today and when he leaves, but Dr. Lewis is also very interested in getting us on board with being like Mayo and like Vanderbilt and like several other centers that are just routinely uh, doing the pharmacogenomics testing on everybody, which I think would be tremendously helpful to you guys that prescribe such helpful but potentially toxic drugs. So, Andy, you might want to share your thoughts about that as well. <laughs> 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 
I'm not in Yeah, I think he, he did, Dr. Nurberg did say everything. The um, gaps in knowledge and the only way you can fill in those gaps is actually pushing the work, the time and the investments, the money to invest in these, um, that infrastructure to, from, uh, to, to do genotyping on all the patients. I think it would be helpful, yeah. Is there, is there a um, mature work that demonstrates the yield of, of that? I think the, the, you get the most bang for the buck when you have this data and you do um, um, population-based analysis and combine it with larger population-based studies. I think that's where the most yield is, um, not for um, individual patients, but actually seeing what um, the results are on a population basis. That's my opinion. Yeah. One example, one example though, Dr. Lee, is the DPYP uh, patients in high uh, definition colon cancer, which, which Andy and I have talked about. Um, you know, these are mutations where a patient can be a poor metabolizer and can end up with a very super, super therapeutic concentration of 5-FU. Um, the Dutch group that is studying these mutations has shown that um, they can do pharmacopoeia. By introducing routine testing, they can do pharmacogenomic dose adjustment, and they can reduce hospitalizations, and they can perhaps eliminate toxic deaths. Um, is the way they appear to have shown in different groups. So there, there are some some real examples. And there's there's a TPMT testing which is done mm -hmm. for I don't, I don't do that. Yeah, that's um, Mary Relling's group has led that um, in pediatric oncology. I think in the area of ALL, kids with ALL treated with six metacarbonate, one out of 300 kids getting a standard dose. If they got the standard dose and they were fully deficient in activity of that enzyme, they would die. And so they have shown <coughs> that everyone must be genotyped before they get six metacarbonate or its related drug, azathioprine, and it would now be medical malpractice not to do that. So, Dr. Leach, not all of those have progressed to that level, but there's an example where what her group discovered led to a change in standard of care. It, and, and this goes to the gastroenterologists who give azathioprine for patients with inflammatory bowel disease. They have to genotype before they start their patients on six I'm just going to ask Vende, and I think Dave already addressed this a little bit, but it's so complicated to do these studies like we've done. There are 208 cancer drugs that are coming at us faster and faster, more and more every year. Mm -hmm. really need a technological innovation to get on top of this or you know, get the information we need. And mm -hmm. genotyping can help, but that's not going to get all the drug, drug interactions. Mm -hmm. Maybe you mentioned um, using population studies. Is that, is that the way they do it? I, I think so. Um, I think with um, advanced technology when it comes to computational science, um, using, incorporating all the data that we have, you know, phase three studies, phase three studies where you have larger population, I think um, combining that with in vitro studies and maybe coming up with some sort of computer algorithm to help determine that. Of course, you always need to test, I think you always need to test out these theories in actual patients eventually, but using the results of these um, 
prediction models can actually help you narrow down so that you're not looking at um, one drug versus 190 drugs. You're looking at one drug versus four drugs, for example. So you can narrow down your efforts. This discussion emphasizes the importance of having a clinical pharmacology section in any academic institution. So yes, we can look at CP online or any of the databases, but if you don't have the background to know where to look and how to interpret it, we need colleagues that we can ask. Right, Dr. Edward? <laughs> like the, the, uh, the focus on sort of uh, biologics and pathway-oriented new drug development might offer some sort of, uh, you know, mechanism for preclinical screening or anticipation, perhaps, of, of I, I don't know, are people doing research along those lines or meta-pathway I think... I've come to discover that a lot of work that the sponsor, drug developers do actually do not get published. I think that now there's an impetus for them to um, publish their studies. But a lot of work that at, it is being done at the front end that we, we don't get to hear about. So, yes, I do think that some work is done. I don't know how. Um, Lina, I don't know if you have any comments about this. I think what I'd say is that... Um, Drug companies have been forced to be more open with uh, publishing the results of nearly all the studies that they do. But as regards the preclinical stuff, there really are good models for some of these uh, monoclonal antibodies and just be cautious about interpreting what we see in the preclinical realm to taking it necessarily into the clinical realm as well. Because there's always surprises when we move from preclinical to clinical. The preclinical data is often not published. Uh, it's only the clinical data that's required to be published in case. 
But one place you can get more uh, pre-clinical data than is usually available is if you go to the FDA website, you can actually find out the, um, you can look into the, the new drug applications that the companies actually provide to the FDA, which are not publicly available. It will give you a lot more pre-test information. Is it the sense that, that uh, it's sort of mostly two-way interaction? I mean, I'm just thinking statistically about interactions, and we talk about high-level high interactions, you know, like three-way, four-way. We, we, we can only deal with, well, with yeah, the drugs, we can find not the possibility of having several, you know, enzymes yeah. inhibited or induced. But as we go out looking at two or three-way interactions, we really haven't been put together very well. We tend to sort of look at one-to-one -one interactions. Sure. Is that something we can get our hands on around? Then they have one last question. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned how difficult it is for patients since they don't derive any necessarily any benefit. So can you talk a little bit about enrolling people to these trials and if you learned any special techniques during your um, EMOC fellowship? Um, Basically, when a provider has used first, second, third line standard therapy and there are no other standard therapies to be used, um, then they would usually consult the phase one group for um, no, investigational agents. Sometimes we do solicit, um, we go to the different tumor boards with a study that we have. Most of, our, most of these studies are to all commas, so all solid tumors, for example. and. Um, and um, refer. <laughs> so, I don't know.